On today's show, Ed Orgeron is fired at LSU and we discuss the separation between finding success and being able to sustain it. Before I get there, I want to give you one reason why gambling should be legal everywhere. Thursday night, oh, it feels so good to return to the dumpster. The Broncos and the Browns are playing. The total is set at 42 and a half points. We will be taking the under because these teams are currently not real teams. The Broncos, they're a team that has plummeted from a 3-0 fast start to nothing. The Browns, they're the walking wounded. I don't even know who's going to be playing on Thursday night. It's the perfect matchup for a Thursday night NFL game. Broncos, they start off their season. They beat the Giants, the Jags, the Jets. Everybody gets fired up. This is a good team. This is a good team. No, unfortunately, it's not a good team. They've promptly lost their next three games. Now they're going on the road to play in Cleveland. Losing streaks, they're very welcome on Thursday night. We know this. That's why the Broncos are coming in. The Browns on the other side, I don't know who will be there. Baker Mayfield's hurt. They think he might play. They think he might not. Nick Chubb's out. Kareem Hunt's out. Odell got hurt on Sunday. Their offensive line is completely riddled with injuries. 20 different players on their roster currently have an injury designation. I could be playing for the Cleveland Browns on Thursday night, which would definitely help the under. Under 42 and a half is the play. Okay, because Thursday is about garbage football. This game looks like it's going to be a slog between two injured offenses. I forgot to mention Teddy Bridgewater, the Broncos quarterback. He's also injured. He can't step off a podium. I watched this morning at a press conference. He's supposed to be playing. It seems like they're just going to hand it off over and over on both sides. How are they going to get above 42 and a half points? They will not. That's why we are betting under 42 and a half. It's why we have our reason why gambling should be legal everywhere, because there is no possible way that anybody will watch Broncos versus the Zombie Browns without money riding on some portion of the game. And now, Sports with Chris Rawl. At the highest levels of any profession... Uh, Any person can find success. That's the point of being one of the most talented individuals in any particular field. All those people capable of success at any given moment in time. Now, what separates the most talented individuals from all the rest right there, that top 1%, what separates them is the ability to sustain that success. Uh, This is one of the things that I love, love, love watching, tracking, and theorizing on in the world of sports. It's seeing somebody find success and trying to determine, is that sustainable or not for this particular person? I'll admit wholeheartedly, I am usually wrong on this matter. Kind of why I think it's fun. A lot of monkey wrenches are thrown into the equation, and somebody who you think is set up for long-term success is not, and vice versa. Now, I bring this up because earlier this week, Ed Orgeron... Uh, was told by LSU that he's going to coach out the remainder of the season, and then he is gone. Uh, Ed Orgeron has followed a very interesting arc over his entire career, and especially within the last three years, because I think he's a good illustration of this point. I think he's a good illustration of how quickly things change within the world, within your own profession, and within your own realm when you find success itself. What does that actually mean to you as an individual. So in 2019, the LSU Tigers pieced together one of the greatest seasons in the history of college football. Kind of random, out of the blue type season. Joe Burrow's under center. He's throwing outside to 
Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson and Terrence Marshall, all awesome NFL wideouts in present day. He's handed it off to Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, tailback for the Kansas City Chiefs now in present day. Burrow, we know, great starter for the Cincinnati Bengals. It's just an NFL-caliber team, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Most importantly, Ed Orgeron hires an unknown dude from the New Orleans Saints named Joe Brady to come and be the co-offensive coordinator. And Brady comes and brings the LSU Tigers kind of man-ball offensive approach that Les Miles, the previous coach, really leaned into and said, we're coming into the 21st century. Look at all this talent littering our roster, all these wideouts and tailbacks who can catch and run and a great quarterback who his number one asset is the ability to make quick decisions on the fly in a high-octane system. Joe Brady came in and said, let's just change the scheme and see how this works. Well, alongside last year's Alabama team, uh, this 2019 LSU Tiger offense is one of the most potent offenses of my lifetime. A lot of people think that those two teams in the last two years maybe are the best two offenses in the history of college football. Within the 2019 season, they're beating the doors off a whole handful of top 10 teams. Uh, Early season win on the road at Texas. They go to Tuscaloosa and slap Alabama around. It really dawns on me in the SEC title game when they're beating Georgia by 27 that, oh, yeah, I think this team is probably going to win the national championship. And I did not expect that even a couple weeks earlier going into the Alabama game. In the playoff, they run Oklahoma right out of the building. They beat him 63-28. They beat Clemson by 17 in the national title game. Just an incredible season that LSU hands the ball to their offense and just takes a blowtorch to everybody in their path. It's one of the true out-of-nowhere success stories that ended in a national championship in the history of college football. So we watched that. And it's interesting for a wide variety of reasons, many of which I've already described. And one of those is right at the top, the head coach, Ed Orgeron. Because Ed Orgeron's career arc had gone in very strange directions, including at that point. He's hired by Ole Miss, uh, you know, 15 years or so earlier, and just completely flames out. Crazy man, screaming. Nobody knows what's going on with him. Ole Miss does not find success on the field. He gets fired. He goes back to being assistant at USC, highest paid assistant in his time under Lane Kiffin. Lane Kiffin's fired. Orgeron takes over as interim head coach for a while. USC does okay. Some people want him to stay. Everybody else goes, it's USC. You can do better. You know, this guy, we've already seen him at Ole Miss. We know he's not a good head coach. He's just not cut out for the role. Sure, he seems like a good recruiter and motivator, but how far can that really take you? And again, we're USC. We can hire whoever we want. So they bypass him. He ends up going back to LSU as an assistant. When Les Miles is fired, he gets the interim tag. LSU, they're reasonable under him as an interim head coach, but I don't think they really want him there because they're sniffing around Tom Herman. That's who they truly want. Herman ends up choosing Texas. And it seems like LSU at the time settles for Ed Ordron. Uh, This is a point where a lot of people, myself included, say, I can't believe that LSU, much like USC, uh, they have their pick of the litter when it comes to coaching candidates. I can't believe that they're just hiring their own interim head coach, a coach who we've already seen fail in past stops as a head coach. So you take that view of Ed Orgeron, and after a couple years, we get into the 2019 season. And at first, I kind of think it's fool's gold, but it's fun. And then the season's going along, and I go, this isn't fool's gold. 
And by season's end, I'm going, wow, this is a pretty incredible and triumphant culmination of Ed Orgeron's redemption story. Just this perceived coaching failure who learned from his mistakes, went to a place that uh, a situation that a really good recruiter and overseer of a program can do a whole hell of a lot with. And he goes from Ole Miss and USC to the top of the world with LSU. So at 2019... You know, January of 2020, this is when they've won the national title, less than two years ago from present day. Uh, Ed Orgeron's being talked about as this is one of the best coaches in America. It's an incredible job that he's done. Look all the talent he's recruited. Look at the people he's installed on his staff. This is amazing. Uh, and then we fast forward to present day. And since that national championship, LSU has a 9-8 and eight record. Last year... It's kind of written off as the weird COVID year in a way that many teams did. LSU, they had a bunch of opt-outs. They had a bunch of people graduate to the NFL, obviously. They go five and five. We say, eh, let's just forget that. LSU still got a lot of talent. Edo knows what he's doing. Yeah, he's made some weird hires. Joe Brady left and he's hired Bo Pelini to run the defense and that was a disaster. He's immediately fired. But let's see what they have to offer this year. And this year, it's just kind of been more of the same including two really shocking losses to UCLA and Kentucky. Not necessarily because they lost to them, but how they lost. Just physical domination from a Pac-12 team that, you know, SEC fans love just saying, eh, that's soft. They don't play real football. Well, UCLA took it to LSU. And Kentucky, they did the exact same thing. Just lined up, ran it straight at them, stopped them on defense and said, go home, you lost by 21 points. Throw in another loss to Auburn there, and you have the recipe for LSU's uh, powers that be getting together after last Saturday's game against Florida and saying, uh, this guy that everybody thought was one of the best coaches in America less than two years ago, we are going to let him go at season's end. Now, there's a lot of stuff that goes into this. Uh, a lot of it is on the field. Some of it is off the field, as many people have written about. Uh, most notably, LSU being under investigation for how they've handled rape allegations against Darius Geis. A lot of stuff that went into that. That obviously is not helping matters, but we've gone from a place where the perception of Ed Orgeron has shifted three different times within the last three years. He's a bad coach, not fit for LSU, and he's the best coach, and he's won a national title, and now we're back to where we started. I want to read something to you from Brody Miller of The Athletic. Orgeron is the coach who lifted LSU from its struggles and the man who led it off a cliff. He fixed many of the lingering issues from the Miles era, an outdated offense, a troubled culture, and recruited a deep and loaded team that produced 14 players selected in the 2020 NFL draft. He got Burrow from Ohio State and found Brady out of nowhere with the Saints. He earned that national title. And he earned this decline. He was dealt unfair hands like the COVID-19 pandemic and unprecedented injuries and star players opting out but he also made the choices and actions that had LSU's standard of performance drop a little each day, end quote. Again, it's very interesting to note that within this three-year window, public opinion has shifted drastically from bad to good to bad again. And it's really kind of the microcosm of what I started the show with. A lot of people can find success especially the most talented individuals in whatever particular field, in this case, coaching, college football. Uh, but being able to sustain that success is a very different matter. The last three LSU coaches we've seen win national titles. 
It's a place that is set up for success. Edo, less miles before him, Nick Saban before him. Now, the first one has shown that he possesses great capacity to sustain success. That is what has made him probably the best coach in the history of college football. The other two, uh, which most people fall in that bucket of, and it's no knock on them, they've won national titles. That's an incredible achievement. The other two have shown it's just as hard, if not harder, to sustain the success rather than just finding it individually. Um, As I speak about that subject, I think about the coach of my favorite team, Nebraska, and Scott Frost. And he's also an interesting examination through this particular lens. Uh, Success versus the ability to sustain success. And especially when you're transitioning success at one prior stop to a different stop. How does that correlate? How does that work in unison to try to build up the next place that you're at? Uh, At the end of 2017, Scott Frost was the hottest coaching candidate in America. He was coming off of an undefeated season with UCF. He had implemented this breakneck, explosive offense that had taken the AAC by storm. Um, He had learned under Chip Kelly at Oregon. He'd learned under Tom Osborne as a player at Nebraska. He seemed like this perfect idea of blending everything that made football teams successful in the past with everything that makes football teams successful in the present. Now, at this time, who has a gaping void at head coach? Nebraska Cornhuskers, Scott Frost's home college in his home state, the same team that he quarterbacked to a national championship in 1997 in the final game of legendary coach Tom Osborne's career. And Frost takes the job, and it's hard to put into words how excited I am at that particular moment in time. He comes in, he has the press conference with Nebraska, a bunch of former players are there in the room. He's saying all of the things that every Nebraska fan is just thirsting for. Just this idea that, hey, I was there when Nebraska was successful over two decades ago. I understand the foundational pillars that made that program what it was. I understand not all of them are applicable in present day, but I understand the ones that are. And when you take that and you realize that I also understand what modernized football is, and I understand modernized offense, the most important side of the ball in present day college football, and I understand how to blend all these things together. That was catnip for all Nebraska fans. I'm listening to it going, okay, this is the one. This is the one. Uh, He has had incredible success already in his coaching career as offensive coordinator at Oregon and now as a head coach at UCF. He's paid his dues, and now it's time to go to Nebraska and sustain that success even further. Uh, And even by the end of season one, Nebraska, they don't have a winning record, but the hope is sky high because by the end of that season, Adrian Martinez, freshman quarterback, he's running around making plays. They're taking Ohio State down to the final possession at the horseshoe. The offense seems right on the verge of a breakthrough, and they're going to do what Frost has promised. We're going to come in. We're going to take the Big Ten by storm. They've never seen offense like this, and they're going to have to get us now because they won't be able to get us later. And then the next year goes by, and the next year goes by, and we're into season four. And as much as I love to talk about coaching, and there are certain things that I think are easily comprehensible for me as to what makes this coach good and what makes this coach bad, there's also so much that goes into it that I just, I, I can't 
properly contextualize if this is good coaching or bad coaching or somewhere in between. I have no idea. And we're to that point with Frost because I pay closer attention to Nebraska's program than any program. I read, I listen, I watch every game. I'm just endlessly thinking and talking about what went into this game. Uh, What's the trajectory of this team in this season? What's the trajectory of this team moving forward over the next few years? And with Scott Frost as coach, I can't fully tell where the blame lies for Nebraska having no success whatsoever through four years. They make so many tiny mistakes every single game that if you just hear that spoken, logically saying, you go, this is a reflection of the coaching staff. This is bad coaching because when it happens over and over and over over the course of years, it has to be a coaching issue, right? And then I think about that logically in terms of this season. And I go, okay, well, they just lost a game against Minnesota on Saturday where Connor Culp, the kicker, he can't make extra points. And he's done that a bunch this season. And he can't make a 27-yard field goal, which he's done that a bunch this season. And on a very important play in the second half, when Nebraska's trying to take the lead from the four-inch line and it's fourth and goal, and they run a play for Jacques Yant, their tailback, and he looks like he has a touchdown. He just trips over his own laces and is tackled. Are those coaching issues? Are those execution issues? Uh does Scott Frost, does he just need to take Connor Culp into practice and line him up at the extra point three-yard line and say, you need to kick this in a bunch and then make sure that happens in the game? Do you take your tail back and practice and say, let's practice not tripping over your own shoelaces because that's what good coaches do. They eliminate these tiny mistakes. It seems unfair when I think about it in those logical terms. Think back to the Michigan State game, also a loss this season, also a game that Nebraska could have easily won, much like Minnesota on Saturday. And I say, I don't know how much of this is on the players, how much of this is on the coaching, how much of this is just randomized fate that really seems to hate Nebraska. Their starting punter, he kicks the ball seven yards on one play, just punts it out of bounds. So he's benched. How do you coach that out of him? You line him up in practice and say, we're going to practice not punting the ball seven yards. Let's see. Let's start there with the basics. And then even worse, their backup punter comes in. And Nebraska has a seven-point lead with four minutes to go. They haven't given up a first down the entire half. They run a play. It's an Australian-style rugby punter. They say, we're just going to roll it out right, kick it to the right uh, sideline. That's where our coverage is going to be flowing. We'll tackle them and stop them, and the game will be over. Instead, the punter, for reasons unknown, kicks it directly left on a rope. The entire coverage unit is on the wrong side of the field. Michigan State just catches it and runs it back, uncontested for a touchdown. Goes into overtime, Nebraska loses. Um, is that coaching? I don't, again, it's it's very hard for me when I'm looking for areas to assign blame and the frustration that comes with watching a team that I want to do well not. It's very, very hard sometimes to assign, what is the problem here? How is this fixed? Do you just line your punter up in practice and say, when I, we need it punted to the right, you kind of need to punt it to the right. I don't know. I think back to the season opening loss against Illinois and the play that kind of starts the snowballing of a loss is Cam Taylor Britt, one of Nebraska's best players, cornerback. He's back trying to return a punt and he runs inside his five to field it. Oh no, that's not what you're supposed to do. Everybody knows that you're taught that in the womb. And 
He catches it at his own two and then panics and runs back into his end zone. And then he panics even further and he's trying to throw the ball out and the refs throw a flag down and go, you can't do that. That's a safety. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. When I'm, when I'm trying to think about how much effect a coach has and a coaching staff has and, and the blame and where it should be placed and when you're actually looking beyond just I don't just want to assign blame. I want to fix what ails this team in present day. You look at Nebraska and you go, is it just simple execution gone wrong over and over and over? Is it a player tripping over his own laces? Is it a kicker who is unable to kick even the most simple of kicks? Is it a punter who's even able, not even able to execute just a simple punt, just punt it somewhere? Is it a player who doesn't understand that you're not supposed to fill the punt inside your own five and then running back even further and compounding a mistake? Is it just simple execution? Um, is the blame on just that's the individual player right there. They made a bad play. They did an asinine thing. What do you want? Um, if that piles up over and over and over again, does that become a coaching issue or is it just a string of unfortunate events that each player holds accountability for just making a crazy boneheaded play, but that keeps happening over and over and over. At what point does that shift from player to coach? Um, how much of a role does culture play in it or something else entirely like I've spoken about? Just is there something in this universe that truly despises this team and prevents them from winning through whatever means necessary? I don't know. Um, when you're trying to connect the dots from UCF to Nebraska and going, okay, Frost obviously found great success at a prior stop. This is a different situation, but still it's, the same coach and predominantly the same coaching staff that took the nation by storm in 2017 pounded on Auburn in their New Year's Six Bowl game. And yet at Nebraska, when they're trying to sustain that success and carry it over into the Big Ten, they've coached 40 games. They're 15 and 25 overall. Um, they've played 22 one-possession games. Their record in that, in those particular games, it's almost incomprehensible. Five and 17. Simple math tells us those games, they all boil down to this weird stuff. And so kind of coin flippy. Um, simple math says, yeah, that should regress to the mean at some point. Five and 17, that's not really sustainable. And yet you watch Nebraska every single game. And I've watched all 17 of those losses. And I go, when does this end? Nebraska gets into a close game and I just expect it. I go, all right, who's going to... I don't know how it'll happen because it's a new way every game, but I know it's going to be a crazy error. And I know I'll never be able to predict it, so I'll just watch when it happens and laugh in a sad, super, super sad way. And I'll wipe away the one trickling tear down my face and go, man, I can't believe a tailback just tripped over their own laces at the goal line. Frost is at the point in his career where he's been promised patience, as he should. He's four years in at Nebraska. I think a lot of Nebraska fans deep down have the feeling that maybe they don't want to confront, which is if it's not him that is going to bring this program back to at least respectability, who is it going to be? I mean, he seems tailor-made to turn Nebraska at the very least into just a team that is not a laughing stock, a team that can hold its own within the Big Ten West and then go from there. If it's not Scott Frost, who again seemed like the one for all the reasons I've talked about earlier, well, who is it going to be? So with him, we're going, how much of a learning curve should be extended in this, what was a new situation and still technically kind of is new. I mean, the transition from the AAC to the Big Ten, that's a big deal. 
Frost has spoken about that. They weren't fully prepared for just the difference stylistically in what football is being played in the Big Ten, the drastic jump up in physicality that the Big Ten has versus the AAC, and some of the stuff that they found success with there uh, maybe doesn't necessarily translate over to the Big Ten. All that we know is we're sitting here in Nebraska's 3-5 and five this season, and Frost is finding it to be a lot harder to sustain the success that he found in 2017. So that's, that's the big question uh, when you ascend to the top of your profession, which again is really hard to do and deserves its own celebration. If you do that one time, who even cares? You ascended to the top of your profession, you'll always have that for all of time. Whether you're Ordron, whether you're Les Miles, anybody who's there won a national title, even Frost, going undefeated at UCF, beating Auburn in the bowl game that year, that's something that you always have. But he's finding that there's another question that comes after that. It's not as simple as, I found success, now it's just there for all of time. Uh, He's looking at the question of how sustainable is your success. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, the reality is, at the highest level, everybody possesses the capacity for greatness. Everybody. They're all the most talented individuals in the world. So then the question becomes, okay, once you find success, how sustainable is that? There's always going to be a separation between the very, very best and the rest. It's that sustainability. It's why we can watch any random NFL quarterback in a given game and go, that player was incredible today. Think back to Taylor Heineke of the Washington football team last year. Playing against the Buccaneers in the playoffs going, this is amazing. What a great game. Yeah, they lost, but... Who would have ever expected Taylor Heineke to look this good in a game? Well, Taylor Heineke technically is one of the 50 best quarterbacks on planet Earth. So it shouldn't be that shocking that he could find success on an individual level in any given game. He has an incredible amount of talent. That's how he got into that position. But now once you start comparing yourself to your peers, saying, well, yeah, that other quarterback, Teddy Bridgewater, he's kind of good, so he found success and and that guy's pretty good, and he can find success. Well, what's the separation? Sustainability. So then you go, well, Taylor Heineke, that was a good game, but now the more we see you play, not, maybe not great. Uh, it seems like Aaron Rodgers might be a way better quarterback than you because he takes that one individual best performance of Taylor Heineke's career, and he just says, I'm going to do that week in, week out. I'm going to throw for 300 yards every week. I'm going to throw for three touchdowns and no picks. And I'm going to dissect opposing defenses over and over and have my team score 30 points. That's the difference between the very best and everybody else that's there floating around. When it comes to coaching, I mean, I could talk for days on this particular subject and just how hard it is to sustain and how quickly perception changes of who is a good coach and who is a bad coach, which probably is a great illustration that None of us really know what we're talking about, myself included. I mean, if you look back to last Sunday, John Gruden gets canned with the Raiders and everybody goes, this is going to affect the Raiders atrociously. They don't even have their head coach and the line's ballooning and you can bet the Raiders at plus five before the game against the Broncos and they come in and they play their best game of the season and don't even miss a beat. They smash Denver. And on the same day, Cliff Kingsbury, the head coach of the Cardinals, he's out with COVID protocol and they're on the road as underdogs against the Browns. Oh no, they're missing their coach. What are they going to do? 
well, they play one of their best games of the season. They smash Cleveland. They win by 20 points or so. Maybe it's all just overblown. I don't know. I do know that as we watch this stuff happen, perception changes in the blink of an eye sometimes. And if you measured every two, three years, four years, like we have done with Frost and Orgeron, I mean, you can jump from one side to the other a million different times. I mean, think about some of the best coaches that have ever existed. Think about Bill Belichick. Um, his first head coaching gig as a Cleveland Browns head coach. Everybody agreed he's a bad coach. Yeah, they made the playoffs one year, but he didn't really find success. No, whatever, get out. Not cut out for being a head coach. He's a great defensive coordinator, led the Giants to two Super Bowls with incredible defensive game plans. Maybe just not head out or cut out for being a head coach. And then he took the Patriots head coaching gig and the rest is kind of history there. Bad coach, now the best coach, right? Pete Carroll kind of followed a similar style arc. Coach of the Patriots, terrible. Everybody made fun of him. Oh, go get out of here. USC hired him and everybody made fun of the hire. Why are they hiring this old retread who is not good at New England? And he turned them into a dynasty when he was there. One of the best coaches of his era. Then he went back to the NFL to Seattle and everybody made fun of it saying, yeah, he was great at USC. He's a good college coach, but he can't sustain that success in the NFL. And in fact, we've already seen him in the NFL. He's a bad coach. And then he won a Super Bowl Seattle and took him to another and he's been there for over a decade and everybody agrees. Yeah, he's actually a good coach now. Stuff just changes, you know? <laughs> it, it, it's very funny to have been alive long enough to just follow each of these points and go, wow, that's, I remember a time when we thought that that was a dumb hire and that was a great hire and that coach was a good coach and that coach was a bad coach. I mean, the inverse is also true. There's a million coaches that I could bring up that have followed the opposite. Uh, Gene Chizik wins a national title with Auburn and Cam Newton and Nick Fairley celebrated. What a great coaching job. Look how incredible this was. Uh, and a couple years later, he's canned and he's not a head coach. He's just, everybody agrees. Yeah, that was just a flash in the pan. Who knows? Who could even fathom that that guy was a national championship coach? I mentioned Les Miles earlier. Wins a title with LSU in 2007. Plays for another in 2011. He's doing all the quirky Les Miles things. Mad scientists eating grass on the field. And by the end of his tenure... Everybody, myself included, just agrees, this guy's not a good head coach. How, was, how did he even sustain this level of success at LSU for as long as he did? And he's canned to make way for Orgeron, who then follows a very similar arc. Bad coach, good coach, bad coach. Urban Meyer at the NFL level, he's living it right now. One of the best college coaches of my lifetime. Sustainable success at every single stop. Bowling Green, Utah, Ohio State, Florida. Go to the NFL. Some people think it's going to be great. Others don't. It's been an abject disaster. Looks like he will not even make it through the year. There's been nothing good about Urban Meyer in the NFL so far to this point. I brought up Bill Belichick, and it's kind of incredible when you're talking about this particular subject and just who we think is good at coaching and who we think is bad at coaching, how quickly that changes. I think about somebody who was on the opposite end of a Super Bowl victory over him less than five years ago, Doug Peterson, head coach, Philadelphia Eagles, who kind of came out of the blue. Uh, he was, I don't think anybody had particular hard opinions about him one way or the other. And Philly's on a 
incredible run. Oh, no, Carson Wentz gets injured. They're not going to be able to do anything. Nick Foles steps in. Next thing you know, they are in the playoffs. They beat Atlanta. And then they're winning in the NFC title game at home against Minnesota. Then they're But they're playing the Patriots in the Super Bowl. They can't sustain this. There's no way. Doug Peterson, who even is he? He's going against the best coach ever. That Super Bowl was a clinic of offense, of aggressive play calling from Doug Peterson, and just an aggressive mindset from a head coach in general. Hey, we're going to go for it on fourth down. Not only are we going to do that, we're going to run trick plays. Philly special to end the half. Most iconic play of that Super Bowl. Helps lead to a Philadelphia Eagles victory. And coming out of that, just I think the general NFL thought was, wow, what an incredible season of coaching from Doug Peterson. And this guy's a good coach. Just is. He outcoached Bill Belichick, the best coach of all time, in the Super Bowl. And then a couple years later, he is fired by the Philadelphia Eagles because we've all agreed this guy's not very good at coaching. (laughs) What does any of it mean? (laughs) <laughs> what does any of it mean? Um, it, it, it simply ties back into kind of the theme of the show. It means that amongst the most talented individuals in a specific profession, in this case, coaches at the NFL level and the collegiate level, um, the most talented people in the world at doing that specific thing, coaching football. It means that amongst those, success is very different from sustained success. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel at CEO.com.